I'm Mel Stewart, and this is the Swim Swam Podcast. Joining me today is a very special guest, a dear friend, someone that everybody knows. He's a world-famous vegan. He's a world-class ultra-endurance athlete, best-selling author of Finding Ultra and the Plant Power Way. This guy's a lifelong swimmer, swam D1 at Stanford, but he's most famous for being the man behind the mic of the Rich Roll Podcast. Today, we have Rich Roll. Good to see you, Mel. We go, we go way back. Uh, talking to each other behind mics. Old school, my friend. So what people don't know is that there was a point in life when... um, and I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I did a pivot because I was very, very unhappy. And I think that you understand these, these crossroads in life. And I, and I looked, I rolled over in bed and told my wife, I said, I got to get back in swimming. It's the one thing that makes me feel like I'm at home. And I didn't know what to do. And one of the things I did was this, uh, was using the new technology. And I said, like, Hey, let's, mm-hmm. let's use Skype. We'll do interviews and I'll call it gold medal minute. Mm-hmm. And I, you were the person that I came to, to do the very first one. I trusted you to, I was vulnerable enough to come to you. And, uh, and, and you gave me a lot of confidence. You, you were very, you gave a lot of feedback. You were, you were a rich role. Well, I appreciate that. I, I didn't know that it was the first one, but I do remember that. I mean, I think it must've been like 2008 or 2009. I mean, we're talking way back, right? It was 2008 and, you know, you were in the heat of training for the Ultraman. And I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't understand ultra endurance athletes. It just, it was not a part. I just, it's not something I, I was aware of and you unpacked it. And uh, that coincided, like, I, it, like, I didn't understand ultra endurance athletes until it was like that happened. That interview happened. Then I, my, my wife gave me born to run. And then a, a couple friends of mine who were, who were, um, they were, they're former alcoholics and they, they, they do it like they're in their sixties and they, they do mm. these 50 and 90 mile treks. Right. So yeah, you, you, you broke the seal. Well, you were, uh, you know, very early on, you, you were a huge supporter of what I was trying to do and it's been cool. And first, so thank you for that, because you've always been a huge hero of me. I still remember the first time that I tried to compete against you in a swim meet when I was like 15 or something like that back at junior nationals and in Fort Lauderdale. Um, But uh, it's 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 really been cool to see what you've accomplished and what you've built with Swim Swam and the way in which you. Um, you know, service this, this community of people that are passionate about swimming and, and your, you know, your authenticity with that really shines through. And so it's not a surprise to me that you've been able to build this marvelous thing, but I just wanted to make sure that I publicly uh, thank you for that. And uh, I think it's super cool. It was a, so you were there at, before we started, you were there when we were thinking about it, we, I, I told you about it. So you were there before we launched and you also were contributing in the beginning. And, I, and I'd be like, Rich, will you contribute a little bit more? And you go, yeah, yeah okay. I'll, sign, I'll find some time and help you because you could, if anybody could ring the traffic needle, it was you. And it was, uh, so it's a feather in our cap. And if I'm ever at a party or something, I try to work it into conversation whenever I can. 
<laughs> I always felt bad because I wish that I had contributed more. I think I did like two or three blog posts and then I was, it just became unsustainable for me. <laughs> but um, but uh, you clearly don't need me. Uh, you've got plenty of, uh, plenty of good stuff going on over there. Well, the, the, the watching, watching, you know, what we also got, we got, we got to say this. So when you were writing finding ultra, uh, I got the galleys. Do you remember that? Mm, that's right. That's yeah, right. I did. I sent you. I sent you an early galley because I, I wanted a blurb from you. Did, did I give you a blurb? I think you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did, did. Did it make it on the book? What happened? Did you go? Did you, you went with you went? Uh, with... It didn't. No, I think it is in the book. I think it is in the book. I think it's on the inside cover. I'll go check after this. The, well, the, I'm pretty sure it is. I read it and loved it, and I handed it over to my wife. She read it and she's just like, "Wow, I, I didn't know." Um, you know, it's it, it was great because it was very vulnerable, and it was um, you didn't do that thing where you were writing this heroic. Uh, you didn't pin this heroic story. You pinned a story that was very vulnerable, which is what you do in a memoir. But it didn't really hit me. It's hard to know how great something is because you're reading it and it's, and it's somebody you know. And uh, it's interesting to you, but will it, will it connect with everybody? And I didn't know that this book was really connecting until I was on a 10-year anniversary from my honeymoon with my wife in the Cayman Islands. I walk into a bookstore and it's like, it's as if, you know, Jesus Christ had penned a book and they, had present, and they, were, they would put it in the center of this posh bookstore. And I was like, I walked into a, a rich roll uh, retail moment. And it was, oh, and I was wow. like, wow. So I got the book there and I read it again. And, um, I was trying to see the difference between the galley and the actual published book, but it was, um, it was another rich roll moment. Rich, you, you keep popping up. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I mean, the, the thing for me when I was writing that book was this, uh, you know, war that I was waging with myself of feeling not worthy of the opportunity because, you know, unlike yourself, like I, I didn't set any big records. I didn't go to the Olympics in the ultra endurance world. I've never won a race. So I thought like, why, you know, why am I having this opportunity? Like I, I'm not the person who writes the vainglorious sports memoir. Cause a, I don't have that story to tell. Um, and I knew that the only like value that I could bring was going to be in lockstep or in proportion to the extent that I was willing to be vulnerable, like in sharing the very specific personal details of my struggle, perhaps there's something universal in that, that, that everybody can connect with. So, you know, I think, I think most sports biographies suck. And I think we talked about this um, because they are really just serving the extension of a brand in in the kind of twilight of an athlete's career and that's the goal behind you know such a book and that wasn't you know not not only am i not in a position to write a book like that i'm not interested in that kind of book what i'm interested in is is trying to be as helpful to other people along the way not in an inspirational way but perhaps in an aspirational way where somebody can see some aspect of, of themselves or, or what they're struggling with in, in my story. It was, um, it was vulnerable. It was, uh, you, you put the reader there. If you, if you guys, if, if you're listening to this and you want, you press pause and go over to uh, ritual.com and you can buy the book 
you need to buy this book. Uh, Rich has got a new book out, and I, I thought it was—I thought it was coming out in January, February, but it is out now, and it's already out of stock. Voicing change. Can you unpack voicing change and tell us exactly what that is? Yeah, sure. So, as, as some of you may know, I host a podcast. I've been doing it for about eight years, inspired by uh, the gold medal minute and swim swam. In uh, in 2012, I started the podcast. And, and over the course of the better part of a decade, I've interviewed at this point almost 600 people, and it's been an incredible um, journey of, of self exploration and, and personal growth uh, for me. And the opportunity to you know dive deep with some of the most you know amazing people that you're ever going to meet: high performers, doctors, athletes, you know actors, entertainers, scientists, all different kinds of people. Um, and swimmers and swimmers and you're and nice swimmers, enough yeah. to use lots this massive platform to bring swimmers on. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of swimmers, uh, lots of mutual friends, uh, of course. And, and I wanted to find a way to celebrate that and codify it a little bit. And so voicing change is, is really just that it's a, it's a coffee table experiential book that is f- filled with like amazing photographs and excerpts from some of my favorite guests over the years. So for people that aren't familiar with what I do, they can open it up and, and have a sense of that experience. And for the true fans, they're able to revisit their favorite episodes or dive a little bit deeper. So it's really a keepsake um, and something that I think, you know, everybody can feel proud about having out on their coffee table. So we did run out of stock right before Christmas, but we're back in stock and we're shipping. So if people want to check that out or learn more about it, you can find that at richroll.com VC. You know, it's a, I'm, I'm not surprised you're out of stock because it's, it's a perfect gift item. It's, um, I don't have it. Right. I need to have this right. book. I'll, I'm happy to send it to you. Yeah. In, in a, in a, in a uh, uh, mark of marketing genius, we ran out right at the gifting <laughs> when everyone wanted to get it as a gift. We didn't have any. So <laughs> learning experience with self-publishing. Just in case someone doesn't actually know and I'll preface it by saying this, it's like you, 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 you became a best-selling author. You started doing this podcast. And I remember talking to some folks. I'm like, yeah, Rich is doing this podcast. And is that radio? What, what is that? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't understand podcasts and you explained it to me at one point. So I started listening and I've drifted in and out of the rich role uh, ecosystem, but it's um, I will say this, the, the, it was, uh, you, and, and this was a white knuckle period of time uh, that we've been living through. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm part of that white knuckling moment has been has been hearing your velvety voice. It really, you know, the world came to a stop, and it's I didn't know where to go, and mm-hmm. uh, so I, I I really dove back in. But it's um, did did your That's audience cool. take off during that time? I know it's it's always been on a on a big trajectory. I, do you have 130 million downloads? Where, where um, yeah, something like that. It's, you know, if you calibrate it against across all the platforms, it's probably somewhere yeah, in that range. I mean, it, it, it's, it was interesting when, you know, the pandemic really hit and everyone was at home, um, you know, habits shifted. Suddenly people aren't commuting, they're not going to the gym. And so with that interruption in the kind of daily flow of people's lives, there was some, you know, weirdness with, uh, how people were relating to the podcast, but then when things settled, um, it's continued to grow. I mean, we've seen the biggest growth in the last year 
over YouTube because we really invested in the video side of things um, and really amped up the production value. So we're seeing like massive growth there. Um, the growth in audio only is is continuing, but it's stabilized a little bit. But you know, the show is you know it reaches a lot of people. It's always crazy because we're just we're just here like doing our little thing like you do. You know, and you don't. It's it's a it's a it's all. Um, theoretical right until you go out in the world and you meet somebody you know in a strange place in an unexpected way where they're like oh i listened to the show like you know it's academic otherwise but um you know every day just grateful that i get to get up in the morning and do this thing it's like the greatest job it's a um there was a moment in time where you were it, it felt like you were all in you would do a disengage from your previous life you're you were an attorney and you, and you were all in on this and you posted something on Instagram. And so I'm reading it and my wife's reading it. And it was the most vulnerable threadbare post. Do you remember this post? It's like you, you were, you were basically your finances were tight and you were, you wanted to follow your passion. What year was that? Well, I've had a couple of those uh, <laughs> moments, so I'm not sure which one that was, but yeah, I mean, we like when I first did that interview with you back in 2008, and I was training for these Ultraman races and competing in them, like we were like, it was financially, we were in a really rough place. And part of what was driving me into that experience was that I needed, I needed, uh, you know, I was in pain, I was looking for answers and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Um, and, and something about that training helped me kind of uh, wrestle with those questions, but we were in a financial pinch for quite a long time. And then I think what you're referring to is after Finding Ultra came out, I think there was a sense, oh, he wrote this book and like, let's be, everything must be good. But, uh, you know, books don't really, don't really pay. You know, I got four kids. Um, and, you know, when that book came out, I said, I'm done with being a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for, you know, 15, almost 20 years. Uh, and I'm stepping into this new, you know, world of trying to, uh, you know, find a vocation in the things that I care about. And I, you know, one of the themes of Finding Ultra is that when your heart is true, the universe will conspire to support you. And I've seen that play out in other people's lives. I've experienced it myself. And I was in a place where I thought my heart was true and I was ready to receive whatever the universe was going to give to me. But the universe decided this guy needs to burn a little bit more. And we went through a really hard time. We almost lost our house. We had cars repossessed. We couldn't pay our trash bill. I mean, it was rough. And, you know, I had started the podcast at that point. So from an outside perspective, looking in, it looked like I had everything going on, but there was no money happening. And I did the podcast for years before the audience was large enough to, you know, basically start to monetize it in any meaningful way. So it was, it was really, it was really difficult, but I just, you know, I, there were many moments where I was like, I got, I, I'm going to have to go get a job. And Julie was like, my wife, Julie was like, we've come way too far. Like you've got to see this through. And it took a lot of faith and a lot of grit and hard work, all things that I learned as a swimmer, you know, when you got to get up at four 30 in the morning and go to practice, like I relied upon those habits and those tools that I learned as a very young person to kind of weather that storm and get to the place where I am now. I need to apologize to you because I, I, I've, I've sinned in my heart. I was judging you back at the time because in the conversation that we had, you were always made, you were always apologizing. And I was like, why is Rich apologizing so much? It's like, he's kicking ass. 
CNN said he was one of the most the fittest men in the world. He's got this best-selling book. And I'm like, that's just, this doesn't, he's being too humble. And, uh, but that's what, that's what was happening. That's what was going on. You were. Well, it's, yeah, it's a very particularly, it's a very particular type of emasculation when on the one hand, you know, you're being written about and, you know, all of that kind of media stuff is happening and, and you don't have enough money for groceries for your kids, you know, and that created like this dissonance and this sense of shame inside of me that was like a real struggle for a long time. Well, let's dig into the swim background. So let's, let's, let's show people just how chlorinated you are. Um, mm. I, I know you started at six and I know that you started hitting your stride within what, three or four years. Can, can you give us your, your beginnings as a, as a swimmer? Yeah, sure. So, so I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit um, and like, you know, a lot of kids learned how to swim at the local pool. Um, when I was about six or seven years old, we moved to the Washington DC area and I got quickly involved in the kind of summer league swim meet circuit and really showed no tremendous, you know, promise. It was just something fun to do. I don't think it was until I was around 10 where I started to kind of win, you know, the 25 fly at, at those summer league races and got interested in, in doing it a little bit more seriously and started swimming in the winter months for the first time at the YMCA and showed quick improvement. Um, so around 15, I joined the Curl Swim Club, which was a brand new club at the time. It had just broken off from Solitar, if you remember Solitar and started taking swimming seriously for the first time. And that was my first experience of training alongside some kids who, who were really good, like breaking national age group records, uh, Kelly Davies, Nathan Hamilton, Brian Nicosia, Mark Henderson, were all teammates of mine that I grew up with. And I was very much a, 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 small, a small fish in, in that big pond, but I desperately wanted to be able to rub elbows with these kids and, and compete alongside them. Um, and I, what I learned, I think, as a young person was that perhaps I lacked the God-given talent that some of these kids had, but I realized that with some extra determination and a little bit of a dialed up work ethic that I could, that I could bridge that talent deficit gap. And I was able to do that pretty quickly. So by the time I was 16, I was, you know, making those, you know, top 16 national age group lists and kind of just slowly moved my way up. But so I was a kid who was good. I was never going to be great. I wasn't a superstar, but I could kind of hold my own. So when I graduated high school, I was getting recruited at, you know, a bunch of colleges and was intending to go the Ivy League route and ended up visiting Stanford at the last minute. That was like a pipe dream for me. Because I, I, you know, I certainly wasn't of the caliber to be a point scorer on, on a squad of that, of that quality at the time. And they were, they were, you know, winning NCAA championships, and this, you know, it was one of the greatest, you know, squads of all time at that period. Um, but I was encouraged by the coaches, and I loved the, you know, I loved the environment. I loved everything about California, being a kid who grew up on the East Coast, and, you know, took a leap of faith and landed on the farm in 1985. Story team, but let's let, let me take a step back to you, you described you said you described yourself as not having the talent, but, but but you were someone who could do the work and that would that would push you through. Um, what it, 
how did you manage pain? How did you, where, where did you find this? Where did you make this discovery in, in the pool when you were a kid? Yeah, hundred percent in the pool. And, you know, I remember, um, I just became, there was something inside of me that knew that swimming was going to provide a ticket to my future. Um, I love being part of a team. Um, and I could see myself improving pretty quickly. And I just thought this is like a path because I was having a hard time at school. I had difficulty making friends. You know, uh, I, I was sort of socially ostracized and, and the, the pool was like my one place that I could go and feel like myself and feel like home. And I just continued to double down on that. And, you know, I started doing you know, I basically decided I'm going to be a butterflyer because that's the, that's the stroke no one wants to do because it's the hardest and it's the most painful. Um, and then I was like, all right, well, I'm going to do the 200 butterfly because that even narrows the field and makes it more likely that perhaps I could be successful because no one wants to do that race. And when everyone's doing, you know, 20 times 200 free, I'm just going to do the butterfly. Like I just basically became a grinder, you know, and I started putting in crazy sets that, that nobody else would do. Um, so much so that some of my coaches still like, they still talk about the sets that I would do. Like I just, I, you know, I would just take every opportunity to go the extra mile. I was more reliable than the coaches to show up at morning workouts. So they gave me the keys so I could let everyone in in the morning. Um, you know, I was that kid, like I was super, super, focused. And that's where I learned to grind. And I think there was something about the suffering that was instructive. Like it taught me about my capabilities and the outer limits of what's possible. So suffering has always been my teacher and, you know, it's led me to some dark places as well, but, you know, I think it, it, it served me well when, you know, at 41, I wanted to dip my toe into becoming an athlete. And I had that that deep understanding and knowledge of, of, you know, what it takes to, um, do something hard. Carl uh, Burke at the time was, was it the biggest program or was it the nineties when it became the biggest program in the United States? I, yeah, I, I think that was, I think that was a little bit later. Yeah. It was a little bit later, but it was definitely, it was, you know, at that time it was, it was Curl and Rockville was the other big club. So Mike Barrowman and Dan Beach were swimming. They were the big stars <laughs> over at Rockville. And uh, we had Susan O'Brien, Kelly Davies, Mark Henderson, you know, we had Michelle Griglione for all the old people that are listening to this, who remember those people. So it was quite, you know, it was, it was a, you know, it was a powerhouse. We had a lot of talent. Your, your life is, you have so many tentacles and so many roots into the sport. Um, that's a story team. I mean, it's, were you close to Rick? Was, uh, was, was, was he, was he your coach? Was he? Yeah. Rick Curl was my coach. Um, and I had a very, you know, complicated, um, uh, couple decades of, of wrestling with and grappling with how I feel about that guy. Um, for a long time, you know, this is a guy who was a second father to me. He was a mentor to me. He was very much responsible for a lot of my successes, which created a lot of confusion um, when, you know, it all came out what he was doing. And to sort of complicate the matter more, Kelly Davies was my girlfriend. She was my girlfriend in high school. She was two years younger than me. And so what Rick was doing with Kelly was going on while I was dating her. And I didn't find out until later. And I had gone off to college 
Um, and then it wasn't until, you know, many, many years later, we could do a whole podcast on this, but it wasn't until many, many years later that it really all became public. Um, and now, you know, I, I, I just, you know, A, I'm, I feel, you know, it was a very different time. Like I feel ashamed that I wasn't aware of what was happening right underneath my nose and didn't do anything about it. But we didn't have the experience or the language or the understanding that we have now. Um, so I've let myself, I've given myself a little bit of slack for that, but it's just abhorrent and, and abominable what this man did to this young girl. And he paid the price. He got a 17 year you know, prison sentence. Um, but uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's very painful to reflect back on that, even though you know I wasn't directly affected. Uh, and I think it speaks to a larger issue about this problem in sports in general. In swimming, of course, there's lots of coaches who you know are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And USA Swimming's uh, sort of inadequate, neutered response to actually solving this you know very important problem. I'd say they got a new CEO in 2017 and um, he's our age. He's a little, he's, excuse me, he's a little bit younger than we are and they have a new board and he's remolded the staff. And uh, so, so uh, athletes first and, and, and safe sport is now at the top of the list. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. It's a transformation, but it's a, um, but, but for all of us, you know, I, I, we have a lot of the same peers, and and if you ask them about Rick, they they will whisper. You know, I love Rick. Rick Rick was he my character, my strength, the thing that I that I dig into, and 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 it fortifies me and supports me as an adult. That's I learned all of that swimming under that guy. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it, it cooks your noodle to 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 think back and 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 know what happened. And it took a long time yeah. for there to be justice. Yeah. Way, way, way too long. Way too long. I think you told me that, and I think I forgot about that. I don't yeah. know how you forget about that. That's um. Yeah. Well, that's so. Your roots are very deep in swim, but it, it, when you were at Stanford, that was the heyday. That was the if if you were if you were in swimming, you know, college swimming is almost like a religion in the United States. Um, Stanford was it. It was Pablo, John Moffat, uh, Jeff Kostoff. Um, Anthony Moss. Mm-hmm. It was uh, when you were there. You were there in the. You were at the epicenter of swimming and collegiate swimming, and the be- one of the best teams on the planet. It's uh, did did you, was was that? Did you feel insecure? Was it stressful? What what was it like on a daily basis? Well, it was absolutely a dream come dream come true. I mean, I just I, it was pinch me every day. Like I couldn't believe that I was actually going to swim practice with these guys who, you know, were were, you know, my entire bedroom wall in high school was, was just papered with, you know, tear sheets from Swimming World magazine of all of these people who in my mind were just demigods. Like I, I you know, the idea that I would ever even like possibly meet them one day seemed overwhelming, but to be a teammate with them was just extraordinary. And so, yeah, there was, there was some insecurity, some, some sense on my part of, of, of not feeling worthy of being a member of that team. But 
everybody was so welcoming to me. And I really did feel like I was part of something special because as you said, like it, it, it was special. Like these were, this was the greatest swim team of, of the time. And these people were crushing it. And, you know, to be able to jump in the pool, you know, being a 200 butterfly and train with Pablo and Anthony at that time, all we needed was Mel. <laughs> we didn't have Mel. He was on the other side of the country, but um, yeah, I, it, it was, it was amazing. And I, I love, you know, for me, I'm competitive mostly with myself. It's never been about trying to beat other people, but what gave me real um, purpose was feeling part of that team. And I remember as a freshman, like I really took that on. Like I was, I just wanted to be as active a member of that team as possible because I knew I wasn't going to be putting a lot of points up on the board. So my role was to kind of be a leader in another way by creating cohesion and, and unity amongst the squad. I may, I may have created this ritual narrative in my head and maybe it's wrong. Maybe you can correct me, but my sneaking suspicion was that you were a guy who was on track to either make the Olympic team or to be on the bubble. You were close. Like it, I, I knew that you didn't, I knew that you weren't a Michael Phelps, but I knew that you're one of these guys that was going to work his way to the top. I felt like that, that door was open for you. And, um, it, 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 it seems like that was, am, am I wrong there? Yeah, I think, I, th I don't think I was quite that good. Like I was, you know, I was like a 49, 200 butterflyer, you know, I wasn't, I, you know, I was going to struggle to even make the Olympic trials cut. So I, I think, you know, being an Olympian was never in the picture for me. I, I think under the best circumstances, that was not, that was not going to be possible. Um, you know, but I will say that, you know, my freshman year, like I, I showed up loaded to bear. I was like ready to go. I trained super hard um, and showed some early promise, um, in, in dual meets to the extent that, you know, I was exceeding, um, Skip Kenny's expectations of me. Uh, but that's when, you know, alcohol kind of entered and started to derail the whole thing. So it's unclear what the, you know, what the, the precipice of my potential was, but I think it wouldn't have been, you know, it would have been, I think best case scenario for me would have been making Olympic trials and like maybe making the semifinal heat, you know, that would have been like, the best case. If you come in as a freshman, 4,900 fly, by the time you're a senior, you should be 47 low, 46 plus. That, that's, that's a typical trajectory, but you know, that, that's Mine actually was the other way around. <laughs> yours was the other way around, but, uh, but at, at the same time, you're, you know, you're, you're grinding and you're muscling through just with pure grit uh, to get that, to get that place in the pool. And um, it seems like, you know, we, we know now you're an ultra endurance athlete. We, we, it's, there's certain people who are wired in such a way that they can just go and go and go and go. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering, maybe, maybe you should have been training for the 25 K. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, it is interesting. I mean, open water swimming wasn't really a thing, you know, when we were in college and anytime we ever did open water, I would do quite well. Um, so I've thought about that, like, or if there was a 400 fly or something, you know, the longer, the better for me. Like I, I wasn't, in, I wasn't by any means an outstanding freestyle swimmer, but I've always done well in open water and thought, you know, it, had that been more of a thing at the time, that probably would have been something that I would have explored. You detailed the, the, this in finding ultra, the, the, your, your start at Stanford. And, um, 
And but it, so it, it's it would be good for for our audience to know you know what happened because it, it's kind of a badge of honor to swim in college and and grind it out and do eleven sessions a week and lift weights and party and make it to practice the next morning, but that that's not true. And um, I, I you have a lot more insight about that than than a lot of folks. Yeah, I mean, just to contextualize it, like I was a kid, like you said, who was a grinder and, you know, I alluded to being kind of insecure and, and, you know, somebody who had difficulty socially. I always felt like a little bit of an outsider. I was never comfortable in groups of people unless it was in the swimming pool. Um, but by sheer kind of grit and force of will, I was able to overcome some learning difficulties and graduate high school with really good grades. And, and you know, because of swimming, I got into like every college I applied to, I got into Harvard, I got into Princeton, I ended up going to Stanford. So, you know, when I show up at Stanford, like, I feel like I have, you know, the, the world at my fingertips, like, you know, I'm set up for success, like very few people on planet Earth are um, the potential. And there was a lot of, you know, kind of family investment in that idea at the same time that I was, um, subconsciously shouldering that I think, you know, I could, I could feel that pressure on me. And, you know, when I got to college, you know, I discovered alcohol, not that I hadn't drank at all before that, but I really, you know, when I got to college, I was 3000 miles away from home and I could do whatever I wanted. And I went crazy, you know, that's the truth. And I just got more interested in having a social life than I was in these aspirations and goals that I had set for myself. And it happened very gradually and slowly. Like it's, you know, part of that's college, it's a good time, you know, and it's easy to just chalk all of it off to that. But, um, but you know, with what alcohol did was it, it just, it was, you hear this with people who are alcoholics or recovering alcoholics, like, it's just like this warm blanket gets wrapped around you and all the problems of the world go away. And you feel like, how you think everybody else feels all the time. And suddenly talking to another person is not scary or intimidating. And I just wanted to feel that way all the time to the point where I just was concerned with where's the next party. And so there was just a, a slow progression, a degradation in my academic pursuits and in my athletic pursuits. And, you know, I still showed up for workout, but I'd show up for workout, you know, half drunk or smelling like booze and, you know, so it's no surprise that my um, performance started to decline and I just got slower every year, you know, and it just became um, less joyful for me, I suppose. And, you know, by the time I was looking at senior year, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I, and I walked away from the sport and it was really, you know, anticlimactic and kind of sad. And I just felt like I hadn't ever really achieved my potential and, Alcohol played a big part in that. There were other things as well. So, you know, when it came to, you know, tapping back into being an athlete much later in my life, I think part of that fuel was this sense that I'd never really, you know, done what I got into sports to do. You said there were other things, not just the, the alcohol. Is what, what were the other things? Um, I think that the 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 program at Stanford was probably not oriented around the kind of training that would have been best suited to me. Like, you know, I'm in the pool training with, with Pablo and Anthony and Skip's going to organize the, you know, the workouts around what those guys need as he should. Right. Um, 
and it was a it was a kind of like high intensity lots of sprinting you know 20 times 20 yards and you know no breath and the diving well where i was used to doing like a lot of volume like a lot more like ultra endurance kind of stuff like build a giant base so that i could have a really solid back 100 to the 200 fly and this program was philosophically a little bit different from that and i think also um, the coaching philosophy of Skip from a psychological perspective probably wasn't, you know, suited to what I would be looking for <laughs> to say, to, to say it politically correctly. I traveled the world. I, I love yeah. Skip Kenny. I love that I do guy. too. I love him too. And we're friends and I'm not, a, it's by no means any aspersions, but you know, Skip is a, he's a, you know, Marine sniper and he has a very specific worldview and I'm a sensitive artist, touchy feely guy. I need the positive vibes and he's coming at me hard. You know, it's like, it, it was a little, you know, it's just an oil and water thing. The, the uh, I liked, I liked the way you've responded to that. I, <laughs> I love Skip, but in my heart and in my mind, I was like, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> I, I, he, could, he, he could be rough. He could be he tough. Could be he could be super tough. He was really good friends with, with my coach at the university of Tennessee, who I love also. And have uh-huh. a very complicated relationship with him as well. Um, yeah. The uh, yeah, it's it it does when when people when their careers end and swim, and everybody has to deal with it. Um, everyone everyone has um, you can have the greatest career in the world, but when it's over, it's you you still are feeling like what what did I not do? But it feels a little mm-hmm. bit like death, and it's it's a tough period of time. And then there's all these things I think that happen chemically. It's like you're going from all this work and 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 all these chemicals and hormones that you're dumping into your body and suddenly it's over. Right. So how did you manage that? I can tell you that when I stopped, um, my partying went, uh, I had many, many years where it was just, um, it was endless. Anything yeah. and everything goes. It was, it was, and I, and I couldn't get my arms around. I couldn't get my head around it. I didn't know why I was doing it. I know now in middle age, why I did it. What was your experience? Yeah, it was hard. You know, it was, it was very difficult for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is, as all the swimmers who are watching or or listening to this know well, when you're in the thick of it, and you're training, and you're trying to be, you know, the best that you can possibly be, there just isn't much room to really think about anything else, let alone like, what is my life going to look like after swimming, like, to even entertain that takes you out of the mindset and the game that you're trying to play at the highest level. Um, and I just know, you know, given how difficult it was for me, who really wasn't that successful as a swimmer, I can't imagine what that process is like for an Olympian, an Olympic gold medalist, somebody like yourself. And that's a reason why, you know, in my podcast recently, over the last couple of months, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of Olympians about this very subject. I'm sure you saw the documentary, The Weight of Gold. Um, and, you know, I've had Apollo Ono on and Caroline Burkle and John Moffat to, to talk about this very thing, because I think this is a conversation that we all need to have. And I think the governing bodies of sports need to be more tapped into helping the athletes make that transition, because by the time you're done, your whole life is ahead of you and nobody needs to experience the kind of mental health 
spiral that so many unnecessarily, you know, experience. And it's very, very common. You explained yours. For me, you know, I just, I mean, I graduated college and went to New York City and just went crazy, you know, ended up going to law school after that and somehow got through it. But like, I didn't end up getting sober until I was 31. And that was the first time that I started asking myself these questions. And then it took me another 10 years to really even begin to answer them. Um, so I think the problem is real and, and I'm sympathetic to anybody who is struggling with that because I know all too well what it's like to be, you know, a swimmer, um, and how all consuming that life experience is. You said you get sober at 31. Just as just interesting. Um, when, when I stopped, it was, uh, so I stopped, I, I missed the third Olympic team, which is depressing. And, um, and then my dad died four months later. And I think I was depressed until I was 31. Mm. And, but I started, I started, I, w- I went to therapy. I was in therapy for, I've been in therapy ever since. How did you get sober at 31? What, what was the, what was the moment? So, uh, my drinking was really out of control. Like, not in a, you know, fun rock and roll way, but in a really sad and pathetic way where I started drinking around the clock, you know, a vodka tonic in the shower in the morning. I was sneaking drinks at work throughout the day, um, you know, passing out, you know, multiple times a week, getting in trouble with the law, drunk driving, sleeping on a bare mattress on the floor of the otherwise unfurnished apartment and really just unreliable. Uh, my family was done with me. They didn't, they were sick and tired of the way I was living. And, you know, I was really cut off from the world and and isolated. And I just, you know, basically I had that moment that you hear with recovering alcoholics where one day they wake up and they're like, I'm done. You know, like I just, I I cannot live this way anymore. And everything that I've tried to solve this problem on my own, because it's not like I was unaware that I was an alcoholic and had a big problem. I was just trying to solve it without asking for help. And finally, the pain of, you know, my situation um, exceeded the fear of asking for help and doing something different. So I ended up saying yes to going to a treatment center and went to Oregon and went to this treatment center, in rural Oregon, thinking I'd be there for a couple of weeks and sort my stuff out and ended up living there for a hundred days. And that was really that experience saved my life and, and really reprogrammed me. It was like, I just needed to completely overhaul my operating system. I had no tools for how to deal with um, all the emotional pain that I was in other than using substances. And I needed to learn that for the very first time. And that, that, that experience gave me that gift. And, you know, I, it's something that, um, I think about every day and, you know, I returned to Los Angeles and made sobriety and my participation in 12 step here, my number one priority. And that's to this day, the driving kind of force in my life, staying sober and helping other alcoholics achieve sobriety. That's, that's 31. And then by the time you're in your late thirties, early forties and, and you're, you're training for the Ultraman. You know what what happens in between? How, that's a long trajectory. That's a lot of time. What 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 happened to you in those years? Yeah. So 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 I get sober at 31, and I'm inter- introduced to all these tools for not just how to stay sober, but how to kind of you know become whole as a human being, and how to be this 
spiritual being having a human experience. And, you know, I didn't quite understand all of this, but I was, you know, working towards um, trying to piece together my identity in a new way. But on a surface level, all I thought was, I was this guy who got into all these colleges and had all this potential and I destroyed it all. And I need to become that person again. So it wasn't until later in retrospect that I realized how much of I, how much of my alcoholic tendencies I just placed on, on, on um, success and, and work. And I dove myself in, I was a lawyer at the time and I just was like, I gotta be successful so that I can be this responsible member of society and the world will look at me in a very specific way. Still remaining blind to really, you know, wrestling with those questions of like, yeah, but like, who are you? And like, what is it that you really wanna do? And what brings you joy? And, you know, I, I really believe that everybody has a unique blueprint and something to offer this world. And part of our work here is to figure out what that is and to share it. And I had never asked myself those questions. I was just on this track, you know, be successful, go to this school, go to this school, get this job, work hard. And being a grinder, like I could, I could suffer through all of that, even if it was a square peg being jammed into a, you know, into a round hole. It's like, you know, it's like if somebody has a blister on their foot, they're going to take their shoe off and like deal with it. But I just keep walking with the blister on until it becomes so bad. That like, you know, you can't, you have to have your leg amputated or something, you know, which is kind of how I've navigated the world for better or worse. So for that 10 year period after getting sober, it was all about that. And, and, you know, to some extent I was successful in that regard and kind of did check all the boxes and did all the right things. But, you know, I was visited with, you know, a kind of multi-pronged crisis that followed after that, like part existential, like, what am I doing? Like, I hate this career. I don't, you know, like I'm not fulfilled. Like I worked so hard to get this thing. And like, I'm not happy, even though on the outside, I've got like all the good stuff. Meanwhile, you know, I hadn't really been taking care of myself. Like I continued to eat like a swimmer, even though basically I was just riding an elevator up up and down all day long and like not exercising at all. So I put on 50 pounds and, you know, was just kind of a lazy couch potato guy sliding into my forties. And I had a health scare and that health scare happened walking up a simple flight of stairs where I had tightness in my chest and, you know, and, and like out of breath, just walking up the simple flight of stairs and was really scared of having, um, a heart incident because my grandfather, who was also a swimmer, had been captain of the University of Michigan swim team in the 1920s, swam for Matt Mann, like he was a he was an amazing swimmer, died before I was born of a heart attack at 54. And I had another kind of like come to Jesus uh you know moment of realizing like I can't live this way anymore. And so that was sort of my second bottom that set in motion, you know, all the kind of lifestyle changes that I made to, you know, that, that ultimately led me to kind of doing the things that I do today. All detailed in finding ultra and, and, yeah. and eloquently yeah. and beautiful. It'll suck you mm -hmm. in. You know, the funny thing is that it's like, after this, you, you, we, we have our, our thoughts of people and who they are. And it's like, do you have this thumbnail? And, and sometimes you have the thumbnail in your brain of, of who someone is and it changes every so often. And, uh, and I had one of you, but for years, it was just like this rich role. He's running around the world. And it's the, you know, the picture of you just leaping through the air, almost like you're flying. And it's, uh, 
I love those pictures. It, it, it always inspired me. I'd see it and I would smile, but it, it seemed like you were taking a picture. I guess you were out speaking globally after your book. Mm-hmm. Is that, is yeah, that correct? I, I, I got to travel to like all these cool places. I tra- I was in Saudi Arabia and I've been to Beirut a couple of times. I've been to Bahrain and Morocco. Yeah, it's been insane. Like Mel, you know, in 2008, when we did the first gold medal, I mean, if you could have told me, you know, it's just been bananas what has transpired in my life I, I i can't even believe it i had an experience just this week um that just blew my mind which was that when i was first starting to figure out you know w- when i was grappling with this process this idea of like well, who do i want to be and what do i want to express like i knew i had a creative impulse but i didn't know what that meant or what that would look like and i read this book called the war of art by a guy called stephen pressfield and that book changed my life and really it basically um, gave me this approach to creativity that was similar to swimming, like apply rigor and dedication and perseverance to the creative process and treat it like a professional. And it's through, you know, learning about that through this book that allowed me to write Finding Ultra and start the podcast and do all these other things. And so this guy, Stephen Pressfield, is like a hero. I mean, this guy, you talk about somebody who looms large in your consciousness. Like, you know, this guy is like, uh, uh, you know, he, he's, he's like a Greek god to me with his wisdom. And he came into the podcast the other day and he told me how much Finding Ultra meant to him and like how I was a hero of his. And I was like, get out of here. Like, I, I can't believe the arc of my life that would that would culminate in something like that happening. And so I guess the point, and I'm not saying this out of ego, I'm saying this to all the swimmers and the people that are listening and watching, that these tools that you learn as a swimmer are so important in terms of how you apply them to other goals and aspirations that you have in your life. That ability to show up and grind and do it in the dark when no one's watching, to be anonymous in this pursuit of mastery is such a gift. So whether you become an Olympian as a swimmer or you struggle to make your junior national cut, whatever it is, you're learning life skills that have applicability in ways that you can't possibly imagine. Certainly, it allows you to tackle anything, but it seems like we, we all see some peers that just, they get lost. And uh, we see it over and over mm-hmm. and over. The, uh, the, the, the funny thing is that since we, we, we reported on Cleek Keller, it's a, it's everyone is like, we bring people on the podcast and we talk about it and like, Hey guys, do you want, is there anything you don't want to talk about? And they're like, we don't want to talk about Cleek Keller. And, mm-hmm. uh, that was, uh, an unusual moment. And, um, and it was, it was unusual to behind the scenes at our company because we were, those stories are not easy. And, uh, yeah. and I actually thought of you. Because I, uh, you were, you were so huge in my mind this past year when things were very depressing, and I was like, God, this has been the worst year, and now we're having to deal with this, and it's uh, that was an unusual moment, but uh, I think yeah, I would imagine. Had- I mean, no, I was going to say, you know, when I when when that happened. And I realized that you guys were the ones that broke the story and the New York Times and everybody is quoting Swim Swam. It's got to be strange and disorienting for you because on the one hand, that's kind of a watershed moment for Swim Swam to be, um, you know, 
to be taken seriously by, you know, all these other publications. So there's a weird kind of like feeling of success with that. And yet the subject matter is so tragic and awful. And I think it does go back to what we were talking about before that transition out of the sport and trying to find purpose and meaning and fulfillment in something else in your life. And the extent to which so many people struggle with this, like, I don't know Cleet Keller, you know, I certainly know people that do know him. And so I can't speak to, you know, whatever motivated him to do that, but it does seem like it's a combination of the weight of gold meets the rabbit hole podcast. I don't know if you listen to that, but you know, you, you, somebody who was having a really hard time in his life and became susceptible to some pernicious ideas that motivated him to do something in a way that he perhaps would not have done had he been in his right mind. And although I don't condone his actions in any regard, I try to find some empathy and some sympathy for what, where he is in his life. Like I want to understand why he made the choices that he made. And I think in this very divided society that we're in right now, where we're finding it increasingly more and more difficult to communicate effectively that's the approach that we have to have if we're going to bridge this divide and figure out how to cohere as a union. Like we've got to be able to talk to each other to find some way to understand what's motivating, you know, these behaviors. Uh, you, we probably have, we have a lot of this similar peers. You're, you're one, you're one person away from Cleet times a thousand people. All it is. We, we, right. not, uh, a sweet guy, nice guy. If anybody could Forrest Gump their way through an insurrection, it might be him. But I don't know all the details, and we're not going to know it and for, for a while now. But it's, uh, yeah, people do lose their way. Mm-hmm. The funny thing about SWIM is that you it's, it's one safe space where we could talk to people with different political views, and I would feel comfortable having conversations with them and trying to reason and trying to have a conversation. But I, I think in the back of my head, would Rich Roll do this? He seems like the perfect Zen soul. It's like, you know, it's like, where, where, where do you stand on this? How, how, Stan, how do we manage on, this going forward? Stan, on what specifically? Just, I mean, half, we have half of our nation who, who, who they believe one thing and the other half believes another. It's everybody, yeah. everybody, everybody, everybody knows that I'm super liberal and they, but they're like, it's a media company. We expect that of you, but it's, uh, yeah, it's been a tough time, been a tough time. Yeah. I I mean, I, you know, honestly, I struggle with it and I'm not sure that I, you know, have the answer specifically. I do know that historically um, on the podcast, I've steered clear of politics. Like each episode that I put up is intended to be evergreen. It shouldn't matter when you listen to it. The wisdom and the knowledge uh, can be impactful, you know, whenever. Um, But this past year, I felt called to switch things up a little bit because things were so crazy. I wanted to participate in um, in the conversation around what was happening with our country. And I did that at some peril and I alienated part of the audience in doing that. But you know, I feel strongly about where we've lost our way and I felt a responsibility to use this platform that I've built to share uh, about this and to, you know, to speak up about what I think is right and wrong. And not everyone is going to agree with that. And that's completely fine. Um, but what's the point in having, you know, and having a platform, if you're not, 
you know, leveraging it in a moment of crisis to, you know, speak about the most important subjects of our time. Like I'm going to, you know, the, the world's burning down. I'm going to do a, do an episode about the microbiome, like it felt tone deaf, you know? So, so I have done that and I stand by those episodes and I feel good about them. And some might say that, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a progressive guy. I'm a liberal guy. Um, you know, I own that perspective, but um, I'm also, you know, very interested in trying to understand the perspective of somebody who sees the world differently than me. That being said, I'm not interested in airing your conspiracy theories or going down some QAnon rabbit hole, but I'm more than happy to talk to somebody who has a conservative point of view, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, wants to have a good faith exploration of ideas. I mean, I grew up in Washington, DC. I grew up surrounded by politics and politicians. And all I remember about that period of time is a knowing more about politics than I ever did until, you know, two years ago. And secondly, that there was a comedy in comedy C O M I T Y in our ability to, communicate with each other like there were republicans and democrats you know we're all neighbors and we would go to dinner parties and cocktail parties with my parents and and everybody seemed to get along just fine and we've lost that like that's that's gone and it's deeply concerning to me as a society because i don't see how we can persevere as a country if we can't solve this problem and you know it's problematic because it's accelerated by these social media algorithms and the self-selected information silos that we all kind of you know habituate to now and so i don't have the solution to it other than i am a believer in conversation and i think that's where podcasting comes in it's one of the reasons why i wrote voicing change like meaningful conversation matters it, in in certain respects it really is the only cure to these problems, the ability to sit with somebody else and talk to them at length with uh, an open heart and a true desire to understand rather than to convince. There was a short moment in time where I, and I was really hopeful of it. There was the, when I thought that, that you might be moving to Austin, Texas. <laughs> and I was really, I did Austin, think about it. Yeah, I did. But, I reached out to you. I, we had a real estate agent at one point. That was when, you know, we were really, we were like, we needed to lower our overhead and times were tough. Well, I mean, now it's like everybody's moving here and, but it's also, there's a part of, of the, of this migration from California to Austin. Mm -hmm. And it's like the, the epicenter of the conscious bro. And the conscious bro is a weird thing to unpack. And I always say, I always tell, I always tell, like, tell my friends, I'm like, look, if you're into this stuff and, you, and you're into, you know, I'll, I'll go as woo woo with you as possible. I'll talk about, I'll talk about, you know, I think my soul is eternal, but, um, you know, you, you need, you need to like take a deep dive on Rich Roll because he brings real data to the, to the conversation. The, the, so yes, there's a weird conscious bro kind of thing going on a little QAnon-y that's happening here yeah. in Austin. Yeah. Well, there's a weird, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this. There's in, there's a weird convergence of the wellness community with the conspiracy minded community um, that's overlapping. Yeah. Conspirituality. Like there's even a podcast called conspirituality right now to explore these things. And it, I, I, you know, it's a, it's a new phenomenon. It's very interesting. 
but yeah, the migration to Austin, everybody's going, can you feel all the LA people showing up walking down the street now? Well, we, I mean, we're, we're, we're California folks. My wife went to yeah. USC, you know, we're, so we're, yes, we're, we're a part of the migration, but now I think that we're Austinites and we're going, no, no, don't do right. it. So what, here's, here's the thing. I'm sorry that you're not here because you could bring some balance to our community, but I, I think you're, I think you're there. Are you, are you still at the same house? You're still in we're the same the, location. Yeah, we're, we're at the same house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. But it's I love I love Austin. I love Austin. Yeah. I I think you know when COVID COVID when things get a little bit safer, I'd love to go. You know, spend more time there. I thought about like getting an Airbnb house and being there for a couple of weeks and doing podcast interviews. Like I I love I got lots of friends there like yourself and you know I just I love the community and the vibe. I love going to Barton Springs and the fact that you know everybody's just out running around and unlike LA, like everything's five minutes away. Like it's so nice. So livable. It's a very livable city. Um, buddy, I love you. I appreciate you. I, I, I try to tell everybody that I know if, whenever I'm anywhere that it's that, uh, Hey, you know, rich roll, he's the man, but it's, uh, you know, for our audience, I, why don't you unpack for us the, you know, the, the rich roll swim, what is the, what is your go-to workout? Because it's, uh, I, the, my favorite things on your Instagram account are when I see you swimming. Oh man. Well, um, you know, I'm 54 now, so it's at a pretty low boil. I got to tell you, and all the pools are closed. So I've, I've barely been swimming at all because there's nowhere to swim at the moment. Um, but you know, I like to, I, you know, my basic workout is probably four or 5,000, you know, 800 warm up, And then I'll do a couple, you know, maybe four, three, two, one, a couple times, pull, swim, something like that. Nothing's fast, all freestyle, no butterfly anymore. If anything, I'm just training a base for some open water swimming and I'm doing it for the joy. And I will say that it took me a long time to get to that place and divorce myself from the pace clock and not worry about the competitive aspect of it. And just remember why I fell in love with swimming to begin with. Have you ever seen marketing or messaging that details what you taught, what you just described, the chemical process that happens in your brain when you swim and, and, and you, if you swim that day is better than a day when you didn't, it is joy. Have, yeah. you, have you ever seen any messaging ever? Is someone ever, Someone ever described that to you in a way where it's like, that makes sense. That's exactly what's happening. Uh, I can't say they have, but I will leave your listeners and viewers with an, a recommendation, which is um, a book called Why We Swim by Bonnie Sui. And she was a podcast guest. It's a beautiful book. It's really a love letter to swimming in all its forms and this kind of anthropological exploration of human's relationship to the water more broadly. And for anybody, you know, for all the swimming lovers, like I can't imagine reading that and not, you know, just falling in love with it. So check that out. Thank you for having me, Mel. Um, I've, I've, I've known you for most of my life. And I think that you um, bring out the best in people and you acquit yourself so well as a, as a husband, as a father, as a human being, and, and the service that you provide to the swimming community is, is really cool. So I'm proud to be your friend and I love you too. And it means so much that you would have me on your show again. So I appreciate it. I love you too, buddy. Good to see you. See you.
You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swam podcast on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.